We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. Our show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. So go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. As many of you would know, my name is Dr. Neve Chapman, the weekly host. And today I'm joined by our co-host, Kate Johnson, soon to be Dr. Kate Johnson. <laughs> We're doing a special episode as Kate has submitted her PhD thesis and is about to head off on a big adventure. So we're going to just have a bit of a special episode all about Kate and her research. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Lutruwita. And I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So Kate, um, I'm not going to lie. All I know is you're really, really passionate about trees. We've called you the professional tree hugger, sunshine in human form. Can you tell us a little bit about what your area of research is and what drew you to it? Um, so my area of research is broadly plant physiology, but more specifically, it's the xylem, which are this series of tubes which transport water inside plants. They're just like veins in humans that transport blood, but they transport water and they are fundamental to plant survival. So plants need water for every single one of their functions. And so water is pulled up through the roots, through these tubes, all the way to the leaves where the movement of water is driven by water loss from the leaves. But during drought, that continuous movement of water is jeopardised. And that's because the tension or the negative pressure or pulling force that's inside those tubes on those columns of water increases because the water loss is increasing from the leaves and the water in the soil is becoming much less available. So that increase in that pulling force can cause the water columns to snap. And that is what we call embolism or cavitation leading to embolism, which is just the formation of an air bubble. And when you've got an air bubble, blocking these tubes they can't transport water and it can lead to plant death so my focus is trees but this happens in all plants and my focus has been using these really cool new visual techniques which we've developed by we I mean the plant physiology community to visualize the formation of these air bubbles so well I've used these specifically these two techniques which are x-rays really powerful x-rays and then just optical light and cameras. Kate that sounds like so cool I also love that you're using like fun visual imaging techniques because you're a very creative soul but also I had a really nice visual when you were describing there how the plants tubes essentially dry out they kind of go and like close up and there ends up having this like air bubble that the water then can't get through and it sounds like then it would slowly decay so obviously in a country like Australia where drought is really common um, and climate change driving greater periods of drought this is a really important topical area but I just wondered you know for those of our listeners thinking like an x-ray something we do for bones or for fractures how is that applied to looking at trees? Yeah that's a really good question because the reason whether we use these visual techniques is because it's actually really hard to study the formation of these embolisms in trees or plants without causing embolism by trying to look. So it's called the observer effect, very act of trying to look older systems function. So we need non-invasive things like the use of optical light and cameras or x-rays 
to be able to see what's happening in situ or in vivo, basically, what's happening without our intervention. The use of x-rays, that's actually something that I definitely want to talk about because it's been one of the most exciting parts of my PhD. We use this technique called micro-CT, and you might have heard of a CT scan that you get of your brain, and we basically do CT scans of plants. Because in plants like the xylem, these tubes that I study are really, really small, it's called micro-CT because it requires really high resolution. You need to be able to see tiny things. And because of that, we have to go to this facility that's called a synchrotron or a particle accelerator. A particle accelerator, again, is something you've probably used, heard in a different context, in the context of physics. Physicists slamming together particles to see what happened during the Big Bang. So what a particle accelerator is, is this football field size or even bigger ring where electrons are shot around really, really fast. They basically zoom around in a circle. And that's not the bit that we're necessarily interested in, but the product of that is light light of lots of different wavelengths, including x-ray. So this light is basically extracted and funneled into different areas so that scientists just can use all these different types of light to study their given organism or rock or painting using lots and lots of different types of light. So we use the x-ray spectrum. So it's kind of like a super duper microscope, but for creating its own source of light and then funneling it at something really particular. Totally. So the primary purpose that I guess particle accelerators were built for was to study those aspects of physics, but the byproduct is now harnessed to study all sorts of areas and yeah, give really power images, really high resolution images that you can't you can't get with any other technique. So it allows us to see the inside of plants in 3D, which is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, wow, that sounds so awesome. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. And the whole experience of going to a synchrotron or a particle accelerator is also super fun because it's really hard to get funding to go to them. You get these blocks of time, like five days, where you want to use that time to scan your samples to its maximum. So basically in shifts are always there with your group taking scan. You're a little bit sleep deprived because some people are on the 4am shift, then they go to sleep early and then some people are on the late shift. So it's just, it's a great bonding experience <laughs> with your lab group as well. Yeah, nice little bit of, you know, sleep deprivation and torture. <laughs> Uh, thrown in all in the name of science which is good so Kate what are some of the things that you found while looking at these tubes in trees my PhD was focused on this completely on these tubes as I've said I was looking at the way the air embolism spreads in drought events at a number of different spatial scales the title of my thesis is come with me on a journey through xylem and space I love it <laughs> very nerd. but the three spatial scales I looked at were the whole tree and then a single branch and then the air spread between individual conduits, we call them individual tubes within a stem. So I started off at the scale of the whole tree using optical lights, normal light and cameras to visualise this air embolism during drought. And what I found was that there was huge variation in how vulnerable different parts of even a single tree are to death in drought due to xylem embolism. So we say vulnerability is kind of linked to the timing of this failure of the plant water transport system, the failure of the tubes. So it was really, really variable. And it was also really closely linked to the death of tissue. So that's something we've assumed for a very long time. The filling of these tubes with air leads to tissue death, but it's very hard to show because of what I mentioned before, the observer effect. But I, I found some evidence that these things are very closely linked. And then at the scale of the branch, I sort of, I found that it varies between different species 
and that within a tree where there's really, really variable vulnerability, I found there might be some anatomical cause of why some branches or some bits of a tree are more vulnerable than others. But I'm still very much looking into that. That's a, That was kind of a, ooh, here's an interesting indication, <laughs> which is a lot of what a PhD often is. Um, that's something I'll explore further. And then when I looked between individual conduits, I found something really interesting, which was that the connectivity of this tube system, the connectivity of the xylem, influences the way that air embolism propagates. So these tubes are not just straight, they're connected to each other. And what that does is it increases the efficiency of water transport, which is really great. But it also creates these pathways through which air can spread. So if one tube fills with air, if it's connected to another, it's more likely to spread to that other one that's neighbouring. Well, that's the idea. But I showed that, again, one of these things we've assumed as a um, plant physiology community be some sort of link. But using these techniques, I found that it does seem that the connectivity of the plant water transport system influences how air embolism spreads. So yeah, basically what I found about the tubes. <laughs> I love it. And I've got so many questions. First question that I think is like easiest is, did you like have to take whole trees to the synchrotron or did you do your different like approach to do the whole trees things like was your method different depending on what specimen you were looking at so either tree or branch and did you induce like did you form a drought for the trees to see how much drought they'd experienced when you looked at them Yes, yeah, so the method that we use very much depends on the anatomy of the plant. So there's two types of tube, two types of xylem. One of them is really short and one of them is really long. So if you have really long tubes, if you cut that tree, if you cut a branch off that tree to look at the embolism, the likelihood is, is that you're inducing embolism by literally just chopping off a tube. So that's actually been a big controversy in our field that um, some techniques involve cutting a branch. And it's been found within the last maybe 10 years that that changes the measurements that we make. So to answer your question, if you've got something that has these short conduits, short xylem called trachids, you can cut a branch. It's not a problem because you're probably not going to sever something up where you're trying to measure it, which is closer, further away from the cut now. But if you have something that has long tube, the gold standard is to have either a very long branch or a whole tree. And we didn't take whole trees to the synchrotron, but it has been done. It has been done, yeah, quite quite a bit. We used branches in my experiments, but that was because the anatomy allowed um, and because the questions we were asking weren't about whole trees. But absolutely can be done. It's a whole That's a whole funny experience too, taking these big branches to the synchrotron. They've been carried in cardboard boxes, in surfboard cases, all sorts of things. I sort of wonder what the airlines think when they see these things go through the x-rays. Like, what are these silly Tasmanians doing? So, Kate, I'm going to hype you because you do not hype yourself. And I feel like I could be a professional hype woman, to be frank. Um, But, Kate, you've received a very prestigious scholarship, a Fulbright Fellowship, to go to America to undertake research at Harvard. One, I want to just, like, big up that that is a huge achievement and that you should be very, very proud. And it's exceptional that you've received that from Tasmania to go overseas. But can you tell us about your trip and kind of now that you've submitted your thesis, what are you excited to be doing next? Thanks for hyping me, Neve. That's really nice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm leaving next week, actually. I'm terrifying. Um, so I'm going to be split between, uh, first of all, Yale and then Harvard. So split between 
two universities, two big Ivy League universities, um, where there are some lovely, lovely collaborators who um, one of them I visited before, that was in Harvard Forest, that was Missy Holbrook, and then at Yale, um, the uh, man I'm working with visited Tasmania, so I met him then, that's Craig Broderson, and I'm going to be working with them both, building on my PhD research, which is looking specifically looking at how the connectivity of the xylem influences the way air embolism spreads and whether that also influences the vulnerability or the speed at which drought causes death. So I'm going to be using the same techniques, but the particle accelerator that's um, affiliated with or that I'll be using through Yale has really, really high resolution, much better than the Australian synchrotron, although the Australian synchrotron is getting a high resolution one. I shouldn't diss the Australian synchrotron. But right now it is much higher resolution. So it means that we can look at the individual tissues within a leaf or a stem and see what happens to them during drying. So it's basically building on the research I've been doing but at a higher level of detail and also incorporating um, northern hemisphere species into what I've already discovered and things that I am going to discover over there about southern hemisphere species. So it's taking what we know about Tasmania and taking some Tasmanian plants actually over there and combining that with what's happening to plants in the northern hemisphere, specifically focusing on trees again. So that would be really interesting because it will incorporate things like the fact that our trees are evergreen, they're in quite dry um, ecosystems, but over there there's a lot of deciduous trees that get quite a lot of water a lot of the year. But with climate change, and you know this is a, <laughs> a very important time to be talking about that with the IPCC report that's just come out um, saying that you know we are in a changed climate already and it is projected to change even more, it's going to be more unpredictable rainfall, so it's really important that we know this stuff now. That's so awesome. You're so humble, Kate. But it sounded like really cool. It kind of sounds like all the things that you've found so far are like, if you think of a colouring in book, you've got the outline of a really cool drawing and what you're going to go and do now is fill in that drawing with some more detail, which I just think is so fabulous. And in just a moment, we're going to talk to Kate about how you got into science and found your way to pursuing tree tubes. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we've got a bit of a special episode where I'm Neve Chapman talking to our co-host, Kate Johnson, as she submitted her PhD thesis, which is a very, very big deal. <laughs> and Kate's been looking at how the tubes that carry water through trees are impacted by drought, which is so important given drought experienced across Australia and how it's becoming more and more common during climate change. So, Kate, can you give our listeners like a bit of background on where you're from and then how you you like found yourself pursuing like science all the way to like doing a PhD? Absolutely. So um, I'm from the northwest coast of Tasmania from a little town called Leith. It was a really nice place to grow up. I was always surrounded by nature, lived right next to the beach, um, spent a lot of time at my grandparents' place running around in the bush. And then my, my other grandparents, my nan, um, she grew orchids and showed them in shows. And my pot was really into um, veggie gardening. And I was basically, I was surrounded by nature. And it shouldn't really be surprising to me now that I've ended up in science. But it was not 
actually the area that I excelled at in school. I was good at writing. I was good at English and art and really not very good at maths <laughs> um, and didn't find science actually particularly interesting until I realised that some science allowed you to study specifically the natural world. And that was a big revelation. And I'd never thought about how plants worked until I'm about 11 or 12. So I went to Don College and I had a great biology teacher there who taught us about the water transport system and the sugar transport system in plants. And I sort of thought, wow, oh my God, this is so interesting. And there's all these words that have all these Latin roots and they're really nice. <laughs> and they, And if you break them down, you can understand what the word is because they have these Latin roots. So there's all sorts of words in plant science that if you have an interest in, in language and in understanding what their root words are, you have a lot better time understanding the field-specific jargon because there's actual reasoning there. So I guess it really brought together my love of words, my love of nature, and also my love of art because science is inherently artistic. We're making graphs, we're making artwork all the time. I love the way you come to life when you're like, the words are so fun! <laughs> like I have never thought that but I <laughs> I relate strongly to that kind of like aha moment and how influential like one person can be mm-hmm. in supporting you to like foster that passion mm-hmm. um, and that you know there really is a creative journey in going through science so did you go straight from there to like science at uni and how did you find yourself pursuing that once you had your light bulb moment? Yeah, you're right. It is so important having those early influences in your life. So at uni, I still wanted to keep my options open. I wasn't sure that plant science was exactly it. I was starting to think that maybe science was more it for me than I thought for a very long time. So I studied English and geology and oceanography and plant science. And by the end of my first year at uni, I decided that plant science was just amazing. Like you you see a picture of a section, so a thin slice through a plant's stem or leaf under a microscope and I I dare you not to be wowed (laughs) like we stain them with this stain that binds to certain cells within these sections and it makes them look like jewels they just look under the microscope and you think is that seriously is that just out there is that that tree out there I can't believe that as soon as I started seeing things under microscopes I think that was it that is so awesome and I hope our listeners can feel the passion that you feel because I remember when I started to see things under the microscope but I did not respond like that but I love that and I love the kind of curiosity and the passion that you had for like the wonder and I think that that wonder and awe in science is so important so like when you reflect now you've just submitted your thesis what kind of stands out to you as like some highlights that you just like, wow, I can't believe I got to do that. Well, as everyone's probably realised by now, going to the synchrotron, that particle <laughs> accelerator, it's a huge highlight. Um, that was so fun. And I just, you get there because it's this community of physicists, chemists, artists, geologists, biologists, you go into the building and there are pictures everywhere of the, the images that people have been taking with the instruments and there's all this equipment set up everywhere and I just remember walking in and going this is it this is peak science this is the nerdiest place I'm ever going to be and I absolutely love it so synchrotron big highlight um talked about that enough um but I also um my supervisor very um kindly said to me one day would you like to go to Harvard Forest Harvard Research Forest in the US and I was kind of I don't know how enthusiastic I was in the moment because I was a bit taken aback 
like, do you just casually want to go to the US and hang out in the forest? Like the obvious answer was yes. And I did go. That was in 2019. I went for three weeks, um, hung out there, used the technique that he'd developed, that one with the optical cameras and the optical light to have a look at the tubes, at the vulnerability of trees in North America, met some chipmunks. They were really cute. <laughs> and that was, yeah, that was great. They're sort of the, the highlights that stand out in terms of my research, but other highlights have been the community that I've found within the PhD students at UTAS. That's made some lifelong friends, had a great time in the biological sciences department. Yeah, I think it's a very specific shared experience like no two PhD experiences or projects are the same but the like process is quite indescribable so you know we've talked about the highlights but everyone experiences challenges throughout their PhD and maybe our listeners who are not so research adjacent typically a PhD in Australia is around three to four years maybe so what kind of experience did you have in terms of some of those challenges? I had a great PhD experience overall I'd say that my overall assessment of it was great but there were definitely times when it was really hard and I questioned whether it's what I really wanted to be doing you know had a bit of an existential crisis I think that's pretty normal for a PhD and I'd say that a lot of my challenges stemmed from lack of confidence or not even lack of just struggles with confidence and I I wouldn't say that's something that I've necessarily overcome now or something that I think that anyone ever really overcomes but as you go on you do sort of, you realise that everyone's having this struggle at the same time. By everyone, I mean the PhD students around you. So while that's been a challenge, it's also been a real growth experience. Seeing all these people around you, because you're surrounded by the people who are the, the best at all sorts of different areas, and you look to them, and sometimes you can't help but compare yourself. You go, I can't do that. I'm stupid. I shouldn't be here. And I feel like that's a, a spiral that I go on, and I've heard other people talk about. But when you stop seeing the people around you as the one percent who you'll never be anything like and more as friends and a resource then you all sort of you create this community where you can ask each other questions other PhD students you can go to them we're all on the same level we'll have different skills and when you sort of don't compare yourself and instead you help each other it just becomes an awful lot easier that's been my experience is that confidence has been an issue but the people around me have been very willing to help yeah I think that's a really salient point that you make you know, when you had to do some of that soul searching around why am I here? Like, how does this align to my values? Like, you've talked a lot about the community, but I wonder, you know, when you reflect on your internal strength or your values in terms of pursuing science, like, was that helpful in overcoming those challenges as well? Absolutely. I think that it was really valuable to have those sort of crises <laughs> where you think, why am I here? What am I doing? Because it makes you really interrogate why you're here and whether you want to pursue it. And I think that's a real luxury of a PhD is that you have the time. It's one of the things that makes it really hard is that you have the time and that project is it. That is your sole focus. No one's telling you what to do. Don't have any defined tasks. You're just saying, make a contribution to the research, (laughs) which is quite a hard thing to do. But it does make you look internally and think, what is driving me? And I think what has always been driving me has been that I feel very strongly about protecting the natural world for a number of reasons. Practically, it underpins life on Earth. Trees and plants, they produce the oxygen that we breathe. It's important that we know why and how they're dying so we can prevent it. 
but also on a more sort of ethics level. The fact that the environment is in trouble and it can't speak, it can't, trees can't yell and say, oh my God, I'm dying. But they are. You, you look at them, you look at the tube inside them and if they could scream, they would be. So I think that when I had those moments where I thought, why am I here and what am I doing? I thought it's for the trees that are, are beautiful and essential and are in trouble. I guess I was driven by what you were mentioning before, that, that wonder and also a sense of responsibility to protect them and also the sense of urgency. I think that that still makes me get over my lack of confidence in those moments as I go, well, it's not about me, is it? <laughs> but um, it doesn't mean that I don't still have moments where I think I shouldn't be here. And I think we all do. And I think the more we talk about that feeling of being an imposter, which is something that's talked about in science a lot, the better it's going to be as an environment for people. Awesome. I love that. And I'm sure people can feel your passion coming through the airwaves. I was like, yes, we need to like, get onto this right now. And they are essential. <laughs> Which is awesome. So I suppose putting all that together, thinking about, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed people starting out or maybe someone who's really going through one of those lows and those challenges, and that may be outside of a research context. Is there any advice that you'd give to others? I had to think about this before we spoke. So at the risk of getting a little corny for a minute, there's this book I really like. It's called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. It's by Charlie Mackesy. And at one point, the mole says to the boy, imagine what we'd be if we weren't afraid. And I think that that would be my advice because I think this has been a conversation I've had with so many PhD students, this thought of I can't apply for that, I can't do that, I'm not good enough for that. And we've had this I've had this discussion over and over again. Imagine what it would be if we didn't feel like imposter it. So I think that one of my pieces of advice would be imagine what you would do if you weren't scared and just do it. Because I feel like that's what I've done to get opportunities. I've just thought, pushed to the back of my mind the thought that I'm not good enough and gone, just have a go. Just go on. Just have a go at it. And I, I think another thing would be to make sure you give yourself a bit of a break. It's a common story. And I just talked to Vanessa. You'll have heard that episode if you've been listening because it'll be just before this one. And she said that she felt in her first year she needed to prove herself and that she worked really, really hard. And I did the same thing. And I've heard that also over and over again. And I think that you come to this point where you realise you need to take breaks. And I think the final piece of advice that I'd give would be to ask for help when you need it. So I think a lot of the time we can think, okay, this money's been awarded to me. This is my PhD. This is on me. I have to do this. But your supervisor is there. Your PhD community, your department are there for you to ask for help. And it's not giving in to ask for help. You were starting your research career. You're not supposed to be a fully fledged independent researcher yet. In fact, I don't know that that actually exists. I think that maybe always researchers are asking each other questions. And it's this sort sort of idea of what a researcher has to be that somehow we think that they have all these brilliant ideas and they're all theirs and they do all the experiments themselves and they publish everything but it's not true and you should ask for help. I think those three pieces of advice of you know imagine what you could do if you weren't afraid take a break and ask for help just apply to so many contexts where it's like and essentially it kind of comes down to like just be a little bit more kind to yourself you know which I couldn't agree with that message more thanks for listening that's what I call science we love bringing you science related content and hope you enjoyed the show we also hope you enjoyed hearing about Kate's journey through science so far and I'm very pleased to say she's sticking with the Twix team and going to be bringing us content from her exciting trip in America where she will be representing Tassie very proudly um, so I hope you stay in touch with us via social media and wherever you get your podcasts so that you can keep up to date with Kate's adventures. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.
You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.